Hey nature nerds, Devin here. Unless you've been living under a rock or you're Jared Leto emerging from a two-week meditation camp, you are all acutely aware that we are in the midst of a global pandemic. As a result, many schools are either closed or shifting to distance learning models. My district is one of them. In addition to running the wildlife, I'm a high school physics, biology, and geometry teacher. In the past, I've used amazing connectivity and SciComm programs like Skype a Scientist and absolutely loved it. And it's those things which serve as the inspiration for this idea. Well, that in a social media post circulating between me and some of my colleagues. While we are all homeschooling, remotely teaching, digitally educating our kids, if you need assistance with understanding something that has been assigned for your child, or you need more resources, or you simply want to Skype a science teacher, like me, who may be able to help answer your questions, just fill out the Google form on our website, we'll link to it in the episode notes, and I'll be happy to answer questions as best as I can and as frequently as I can as my own schedule allows. We will get through this. We're better together. If you are a science educator yourself, you can also find a sign-up form to, uh, to join the cause, to help, to help carry the load. Same thing. It'll be in our episode notes. Okay, now, uh, now on with this week's show. Listen to some of your favorite shows ad-free with Stitcher Premium, like Conan O'Brien Needs a Friend, My Favorite Murder, Science Rules with Bill Nye, and more. Plus, get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and more. Just $4.99 a month. Go to stitcher.com premium and use promo code THEWILDLIFE for one month free. This is Devin. And this is Richard. And this is A Wildlife, a show hosted by two brothers that tells nature's untold stories and wild secrets. It's also episode 46 without Ryan Reynolds as a guest to compare and contrast real wolverines with Hugh Jackman's wolverine. Now, Ryan. Can I call you Ryan? I'm going to call you Ryan. I tweeted you last night, just so you know. We've been tagging you once a week. You may have noticed, or, or perhaps you have not noticed, perhaps so many people tag you that you just are immune to the tags. I don't know. But uh, there was a Twitter thread where someone just was like, oh, how nice would it be to Skype Lin-Manuel Miranda? And then guess guess what? He Skyped her. Well, I think it was a Zoom call. My point is, I, I know you're free right now. We're all, we're all on a lockdown. We can make this work. Your call. I'm just waiting. I'm waiting for it. And again, this was a this is the idea of high school students, high school students who can't even be in school right now. Do it for the children. And would love, they would they would love to be able to just sit down, relax, focus on something other than the COVID nineteen global pandemic, and just hear Ryan Reynolds rip on Hugh Jackman and, and talk about real life Wolverines. I mean, that sounds like pure genius. And you are a genius, aren't you? So hit us up. Just saying. Also, thank you, patrons. We have a, a bit of a care package um, that I'm assembling to send out to all of you, the people who support our show with monthly contributions, Chris Trankel, Matt Capel, Andrea Lloyd, Megan Gariani, and Bridget Fitzgerald. You are loved. We hope that you are staying healthy and safe and uh, eating plenty of junk food while you stay locked up. We also hope that you have toilet paper. No, the care package does not include toilet paper, although that would be a great idea if I could get a hold of some. If you want to become a patron, do that on patreon.com slash the wildlife for as little as a dollar a month. 
or even 25 cents a month. I really don't care. Anything helps. Also, wherever you're listening, please rate and review. It really helps us to understand who's listening, what we're doing well, what we could change, all that jazz. So, yeah. Today's episode is a very special episode. It's dedicated to one of our patrons, one of my oldest friends, one of the greatest people on the planet who, if you offered him the Earth, he would say, nay, nay, here is the Earth, and here are the rest of the planets in the solar system, and guess what, Pluto, you are a planet. Forget what NASA says, you are a planet, and he would give you Pluto, too. Chris Trankel, one of the greatest people ever, hashtag C-Trank. He loves penguins. I mean, like, really loves penguins. When we go to the zoo, he's got to look at the penguins. And he's always asked about, when are we going to do an episode about penguins? And I've always said, eventually. And then like last October, we were at the zoo, funny enough. And I was like, hey, guess what? We're going to do one on penguins. And he said, when? And I said, March. And he goes, what? Why do I have to wait so long? And I said, you know, like March of the penguins. And and he gave me uh-huh, his uh, uh-huh. classic Chris Trankel eye roll. Um, and we're not even calling this episode March of the penguins. Maybe empirical March. I don't know. Just kidding. Either way, the wildlife is taking a waddle on the wild side this week, and our guide on our clumsy yet hopefully charming journey is the one, the only, the penguin lady, Diane DiNapoli. Oh, you want to hear something cute about penguins at the zoo right now? Yes, I heard uh, at the Houston Zoo that it's shut down, but because it's shut down... Uh, they're letting all the little African penguins just like kind of walk around all the trails and just like walk up to the other exhibits and stuff. And that just sounds so fantastic that all these little penguins get to wander around the whole zoo. Oh my gosh, that's 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 super funny because I also saw this one, uh, the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. It had a shut its doors last week, and um, um, they it's they are. Sh- blah. They put up some videos of rockhopper penguins walking around through the aquarium exhibits and like looking at all the fish tanks and stuff. So that's super cute. They got to get exercise too, right? I don't actually know what kind of penguins are are roaming around at the Houston Zoo. I just for some reason assumed it was little African penguins. <laughs> penguins, penguins. It penguins are cute either way. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. Diane DiNapoli is a penguin expert, TED speaker, and author of the award-winning book, The Great Penguin Rescue, which chronicles her experiences helping to manage the rescue of 40,000 penguins from the treasure oil spill in South Africa. Also, April's book club pick. You can check the episode notes for a link to join. Diane is a frequent guest on radio, podcasts, and TV in the U.S. and abroad. Diane has spoken at four TEDx conferences, has created a TED-Ed video for the classroom, and has lectured worldwide about penguins, including as a guest speaker for Lindblad Expeditions and National Geographic on their ships traveling to Antarctica. Today, we explore the penguins' popularity, their little-known plight, and, well, their poop as we travel from Antarctica to the equator. Now, this first question is probably the most important question that uh, that we that we ask and answer the whole time, just because um, I get to rub it in the face of my high school students who who may actually be listening on account of the you know pandemic. Um, 
who 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 like to argue with me that penguins don't have knees that they don't that penguins for whatever reason do not have knees they have legs no knees and that is the exact reason that they waddle what even well, guess what, what? makes someone think of that i don't know maybe it's because you know like when you walk like a penguin you lock your knees so it's like oh well they don't have knees I mean, it's sort of a mildly logical solution to come to, but also, no. This is the number one question and myth and misconception about <laughs> penguins is the knee thing. Um, <laughs> there's even a book titled, Do Penguins Have Knees? Um, oh, great. And it's a general trivia book. It's not all about penguins, as you might think. But so the the reason I think there's a lot of confusion about this is that there actually are some books that have it wrong, which mm -hmm. you would hope everybody would really do a lot of research before they publish, but they don't always. Um, and the answer to this question is that they do have knees. Ha. So the reason they waddle when they walk is because they always keep their knees bent at a 90 degree angle. And ah. so, yeah, so if you were to squat you know, and stay in a squatting position and then try to walk, you, you're going to waddle as well. Which also tells me that they have rock hard buns and thighs. Mm. So 90 degrees. And that isn't the only penguin knee fact we've got for you today. That's right. Get ready for a double penguin patella whammy. Well, and you know, just as an add on to that, their knees bend in the opposite direction of other birds. They bend like yeah. ours do. They bend forward. Is there a reason for that? Well, I know that, you know, their legs are on the back of their body, which is what gives them this upright posture. Yeah. And so the, there's sort of two reasons. So the, when they're swimming, you know, and they're in a prone position, their feet are just trailing off the back of their body. They never use them to paddle like a duck. They're just sort of trailing there and they use them to steer. So they need a rudder. So, uh, so their rudder, you know, the rudder's on a stern of a boat. Their rudder is on the back of their body. Now, if they had legs in the middle of their bellies like birds that fly and they you know they did evolve from birds that flew so there had to be this migration of the legs from sort of the middle of the belly over time to the back of the body because if they still had you know if they were a flighted bird and had uh legs in the back of the body they just fall flat on their face from the momentum when they landed there you have it we're not so different after all humans and penguins united in harmony <laughs> You're about to make me quit Get this it. show. Harmony. <laughs> Harmony. I dare like, you to give like one more bad pun in this just single episode. <laughs> it will happen. Please, no. And of course, we have to talk now, about animal poop. Well, yeah. Are you? If you're going to complain about the animal poop, I will rub animal poop on your face. Here's... I'm, I'm telling you right now, if you want to get into zoology or wildlife, at some point, you are going to have a very unexpected encounter with poop. And then you will soon realize, especially if it's a zookeeper, it's like 90% poop. Shoveling poop, DNA analysis on poop, population studies using poop, satellite imagery of poop, which we'll talk about later. All I kinds find of it poop. funny how like scientists get tired of having to talk about poop all the time, so they make up all these little like random words for poop 
and they call it like guano or dung or droppings and like you know they mean poop but no one wants you know, to sit wonder... there and just say poop all the time so they, they you know they have to have like a whole th- thesaurus of like synonyms for poop you know what you're doing right now right <laughs> i'm contributing you are ensuring... to the dialogue uh, pertaining to poop no 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 you are ensuring future dialogue pertaining to poop because we're gonna have to do a whole episode all about poop because now oh. i'm wondering is there a difference between dung and droppings and like like why why do they have those different because you don't say like penguin i mean dung. i imagine it's a very and, like, it's like guano, penguin guano. Like, what's the difference kind of difference but i mean it's all poop <gasps> let's do an episode about dung beetles and we'll call it pooper scoopers Mm. heck yeah we're gonna do it anyway okay okay enough about poop for now i'm looking at a crumbled piece of oreo that looks like poop and i keep thinking it's actually poop because we won't stop talking about poop 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 poop. okay so um the whole the whole waddling thing right penguins waddle they don't always fall down we know that they look clumsy though and I think maybe maybe that's part of their charm is that they look so clumsy. Um, they kind of are almost childlike. They kind of move like a toddler. Like they're about you know yay high like a toddler, three four feet maybe shorter, waddling around looking like they're gonna fall over. Maybe maybe that's part of maybe that's part of the love for them. But what's funny about that is uh, their movement on land is it. Is, is basically the exact opposite in terms of grace and athleticism as it is in the water. Oh, well, I mean, they, you know, they are certainly designed for life in the water. You know, they, their, their wings are flattened. They're short, they're stiff. They've lost the long flight feathers, which would slow them down and create drag. They can barely bend them. So they're, they, they're almost like a blade, you know, so they're uh, very strong. They have a very thick, keel bone in the chest with very thick muscle attachments to interject quick uh, uh keeled sternum so she said keeled sternum if you don't know what that is if, if you are for whatever reason familiar with the parts of a boat like the keel that that's like the front of a boat if you can imagine like the front of a canoe that sort of shape where it comes to a point um, that is what the sternum of a bird looks like now our sternums are flat um, you know where your sternum is, I hope. It's right on the front of your chest, right in the center. Um, that, that vertical bone that connects your ribs. Um, in birds, they are elongated. They have more surface area for more muscle attachment. In most birds, 60% of their body mass is breast muscle. That's a, that's a lot of... That's some serious pectorals, dude. Yeah. Yeah to move those wings and they actually unlike birds that fly they uh get forward momentum on both the downstroke and the upstroke so they can tilt uh the position of the wing so that they can do that so they're really designed for life in the water and they can swim faster and dive deeper than any other bird on earth the emperor penguin is the world's deepest diving bird on longer dives it can reach depths of like 1800 feet the deepest ever recorded was 1,854 feet. And they spend most of their time in the water, which is really why they're designed to be there. So they spend 75 to 85% of their life at sea. Okay, okay. I think this is uh, one of those moments where you're just going to be able to relate to my um, 
my awkwardness. So uh, I, I think we, we've maybe all had an experience where we're talking to someone smart and then we say something just, oh, so stupid. Just so stupid. Listen close for me to clumsily waddle my way through the word Antarctica. And... Antarctica. 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 How do you say it? Uh, Antarctica. Antarctica. Okay. So they're not only in Antarctica. Ah. No, no. And that's another very common misconception because we do in popular culture, you know, greeting cards, yeah. cartoons, and etc. You know, we're typically seeing them on ice. But in reality, only four of the 19 penguin species live and breed in Antarctica. And there's a few others that you might see on the tip of the peninsula, but really you just have the Adelie, the Chinstrap, the Gentoo, and the Emperor in Antarctica. The rest of the penguin species live in more northerly locations, and, and most of them live in a temperate climate. And there's even a tropical species, which surprises most people, uh, the Galapagos penguin. That's at the Galapagos Islands right on the equator. So it's truly a tropical species. So, you know, they, they, the majority of penguin species do not live in Antarctica. They live where it's much warmer. You know, um, I, I, I'm just thinking in terms of pop culture. I don't know. Have you seen the show Atypical by chance? No, I haven't. It's, uh, it's, it's this show on Netflix. It's a series about – it's a show about a high school student, now college student, who um, – he's on the autism spectrum, and his obsession is uh, – penguins and oh. one of his comfort things is to list off the these names of the different species of penguins <laughs> and so uh, i'll be honest you know even even with my background in wildlife biology and things and my obsession with birds i was not really aware of most of the species but watching that show and you know he's always spouting off different penguin facts and uh you know when he gets stressed out he just lists off all the names of the species and i'm like huh, huh this is actually quite the educational piece on penguins it's um, really interesting i'll have to check yeah, this out yeah yeah it's it's pretty interesting there's this whole bit where he uh he he observes the penguins at the zoo and he's sitting there trying to observe and understand the essence of a penguin and you know so he's watching this penguin for this art project and he ends up noticing something weird about his behavior and reports it to the zookeepers and it turns out that there's some kind of medical issue <laughs> with the penguin it's a, it's it's a cute show it's a wow. cute show. yeah that's pretty cool you know with with uh, most of them with uh at least by a uh, number of species uh, not actually uh, being uh, from Antarctica, uh, is there is there anything that uh, makes the difference uh, pretty uh, universally a little distinct in some way? Just uh, visually seeing if if you know if you're looking at an Arctic penguin or or another. So the ones in Antarctica um, are the four that I mentioned. Well, three of them are they're, they're brush-tailed species. So the penguins that do live in Antarctica, um, and but they're not the only ones that sort of have this tail, but it's more distinct in them. So the brush-tailed species have longer, stiffer tail feathers. And for those penguins that do live where there's a lot of ice and snow, you'll sometimes see them sort of um, tilted back like a tripod. 
So they're sort of on their heels. So their toes are, you know, most of their feet aren't on the surface of the snow or ice, kind of leaning on their heels and leaning back. And, and that stiff tail um, kind of balances them. So, cool. so oh, yeah. Like a kangaroo. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah sort of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, and the ones, you know, they're larger in general. So, you know, having a larger body mass helps you retain more body heat. So in general, they're, they're larger. Um, the king penguin is the second largest penguin and it's not in Antarctica, but it is in South Georgia Island, which is still pretty far South and still pretty cold. Um, so having that larger body enables them to retain their body heat better. Um, so like the Galapagos penguin that lives at the equator is the second smallest penguin in the world. So that's one of the differences, the, the adaptations that different penguin species have made to live in different climates and environments. Uh, and that's something you're going to see across life. As you move from the poles of the earth to the equator, um, life gets thinner and longer and lankier to deal with to deal with heat and water loss. I mean, name name one tall, skinny, slender creature that lives at the South Pole. You can't. You got big, chubby penguins. You got big, chubby seals and, and walruses and all that kind of stuff and whales. Now, you move to the equator and you've got monkeys and giraffes and all kinds of stuff. It's just how it works. Body shape can tell you a heck of a lot about where something lives. Okay. And, and how many species, I, I think you said, but just to clarify, how many species are there total? Well, this is very, very new information. So a few <laughs> months ago, I would have told you 18. Okay. Now I'm going to tell you 19. And it's, oh. yeah. And this is, you won't even probably see this online anywhere unless you really dig deep for it. Um, and it's not that they found a new, you know, group of penguins. Yeah. What it is, is uh, the rockhopper penguins uh, it used to be believed by most penguin scientists that there were there was the rockhopper penguin and there were three subspecies. So the northern, the southern, and the eastern, to the colloquial names. And then about 20 years ago, they did DNA testing. They thought, you know, maybe the eastern and the southern really are, you know, or, or the northern and the eastern and southern are different species. So they said, oh, yep, it's two species with a third subspecies. Then a few months ago, they went, aha, they did some more DNA testing because, you know, these tests have evolved over time. And yep. now they've discovered it's actually three distinct species of rockhoppers. <laughs> thank so you. Thank you for that clarification. You're the first that. to know, I think, on a yeah. podcast, the answer to that know, question. That's awesome. yeah. We mentioned those rockhoppers at the top of the episode, those rockhopper penguins that are waddling around the Shedd Aquarium in Chicago. Well, so... This new species is, is one of those, maybe not the same, not the same species, but it's one of the three, now three species of rockhopper penguins. Now, this is in no way sanctioned by the scientists who have done this research or anything like that. Uh, but I think that just for kicks, just for giggles, we should do an unofficial naming contest. We'll do this on social media. We'll do this after the episode post. Now, I know that leaving things to the internet, we're likely to get a name like Penguin McPenguin face, or Rock McHoppy face, or Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne Hopper. I get it. I get it. That's totally fine. That's what the internet's for. And I think we could all use some positivity right now. Especially with Devin in the room. Jeez, okay. Um, so you had mentioned the body size thing, which is uh, 
funny enough, I, I honestly can't remember what it was, but Richard and I were just talking about this, or maybe this wasn't Richard and I, maybe this was me and my students, but we were talking about, um, oh, that's right, I was talking to an evolutionary biologist. Ooh, fancy Devin, my mistake, I was actually talking to an evolutionary biologist. Mm, I'm so smart. Mm, okay about a week ago so neither of those two um about body size and shape and geographic location and how things tend to be kind of overly or or round um near the poles and then they kind of get tall and skinny near the equator so body shape is one thing for penguins for staying cool near the equator staying warm in Mm -hmm. the south um is there anything else behavior wise or uh, how they seek out different types of habitats or yeah I mean, there's both behavioral differences and and physiological differences, others. So, you know, the penguins that live where it's colder have have more feathers per square inch on their body than, say, a Galapagos penguin would have. They also have this countercurrent blood exchange in their feet and ankles that kind of keeps the the blood from freezing, essentially, in their feet. So what that means is uh, they have this mechanism where their, like, veins and arteries are lined in a way that heat kind of transfers uh, in between without actual uh, mixing of blood. So it, it makes it to where, uh, dude, this is really hard to ex- explain. I, I can help. I can help. It's sort of like if you have, uh, let's say you have two, two pipes of water that are far apart. Okay. And uh, uh, one of them is warm and the other one is cold because it's closer to the surface um or or maybe it's being pumped away from you know the source of heat or something um now if you bring those two closer together the heat radiating from the warmer pipe allows the colder pipe to also warm up thereby warming up the contents in there so the circulation of the bird is um uh, sort of like you have these okay so you have two tubes you have the warmer blood coming away from the heart and then the colder blood that's on its way to the heart and and when they when they come closer together the warmer blood it just kind of sends hugs in the direction of the cold blood you know what i'm saying positive vibes and it, and it warms up on its own because they they come closer together counter current exchange opposite current heat exchange um okay. and then in terms of behavior um you've probably seen the pictures of emperor penguins huddling together Yes. You know, during the breeding season, because they're actually reproducing in the middle of the Antarctic winter. And it could be 100 degrees below zero. Winds can be blowing 100 miles an hour. I mean, it's a crazy evolutionary strategy. I don't understand it. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, you're vying for the Darwin Award. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and so they'll huddle together for warmth. And it's a very cooperative behavior. You don't see it in any other penguin species and, you know, for the, to have this close physical contact, um, every penguin species, they want a little space. You know, you've probably seen footage of the penguins in these nesting colonies and they're all biting and squawking and wing slapping each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the, you know, evolutionary strategies that the emperors have, have taken so that they can survive that breeding season in such a cold, harsh environment. So did, that this is sort of a, a out of the blue kind of a question, but in terms of their evolution, um, mm-hmm. what I, I'm just starting. You, you brought up the you know interesting evolutionary strategy, but so 
why Antarctica for the ones that are there? I mean, it seems like such a counterintuitive place to be for a lot of reasons. Right. Yes. So penguins have been around a really long time. Um, They evolved from birds that could fly about 65 million years ago. Now, about 61 million years ago, there was a uh, uh, an ancestor of a penguin called the Waimanu Meningeri. It was about five feet tall, looked sort of like a cormorant, so like like a penguin, but with a the neck of a crane almost. However, in 2014, there was a fossil of what is now called the Colossus penguin discovered that was 37 million years old, seven feet tall, nearly 200 pounds. So we're talking like Shaquille O'Neal, Shaquille O'Neal as a penguin. Just sitting up there, he's like, hey, hey, everyone, I'm a, I'm a penguin. I'm going to toboggan down this thing and pop off into the water, man. And uh, I just say, I just got to say, uh, you know, our migration, it was, we were doing really good. But, uh, you know, I think maybe we just need a few more penguins out there. And uh, and we would we would be pretty good. Shaquille O'Neal. And so, you know, when and, and we had this Pangaea, we had a different land masses were in different places Sure. the planet than they are now. And so where what was Antarctica was more in the location of New Zealand at the time. Oh. Okay. Ah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Makes more sense. It's more yeah. Okay. And so, you know, as these masses separated slowly over millions of years, you know, they evolved slowly with that, you know, to, to evolve, to adapt to these changing climates that they were in now and, and environments that they were now in. So they they sort of the original, the first, what we would call a true penguin was seen, the oldest fossils are about 30 million years old. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's substantially older. What's their, uh, what's their closest living relative? Ah, this one's going to surprise you. (laughs) So, um, because a lot of people, they think maybe they're counterpart in the northern hemisphere would be the puffin or the auk or something like that but actually one of their closest living relatives is the albatross which is totally counterintuitive oh wow (laughs) right i would not have guessed that (laughs) right who would ever think because albatross have the largest wingspan of any bird you know, they can fly like crazy and penguins are these, you know, little tiny wings. They can't fly at all. So, yeah, that, that is kind of funny, the the, the, the uh, contrast there between the two. But, I mean, I suppose, I mean, penguins really are kind of flying underwater. Yes. Um, yes. So, in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're both pelagic seabirds. And so the other yeah. close relatives would be... Um, uh, the loon and um, the petrel. Um, and so, you know, they all, they kind of, though they branched off from the same tree, but those would be the closest relatives today that are living. Okay. Now, um, one of those behaviors for uh, odd, odd behaviors, I suppose. So I thought I read somewhere recently that there are nocturnal penguins. Is that true? Well, yeah, the the little blue penguin, um, they're kind of unique and different than most penguins in many ways. Uh, they are more nocturnal in nature. Uh, they, I mean, they're not completely nocturnal, They, but they are often awake in the middle of the night and screaming their heads off. And they tend to nest underneath people's porches in Australia. And so yeah. they find them quite annoying. Um, 
so they're a little more nocturnal than many of the other penguin species, but um, I don't know that any of them are truly 100% nocturnal. Now, if you want to get a glimpse of these little blue penguins, the Phillip Island Nature Park, um, where where tourists can go to, uh, funny enough, I did not know this at the time of saying this earlier, um, they can enjoy a waddle on the wild side and watch the nightly migration of the little blue penguin, also known as the fairy penguin. Something that is now officially on my bucket list, yeah. as long as I am not disturbing their that. habitat. Yeah, I would die for a little blue penguin. And you think I'm exaggerating. I'm not. I'm not. Going off the name, is that the uh, the smallest penguin? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they're uh, from Australia and New Zealand. And they are the smallest of all the penguins. They're really adorable. I mean, they're, they only stand about eight to nine inches high. They weigh two to three pounds. So they're tiny, tiny little birds. And they actually are blue like their feathers on their back are sort of a steely turquoise blue um and they have the widest range of vocalizations of any of the penguin species and so for this little tiny bird they actually are incredibly loud um when i worked at the new england aquarium we had little blue penguins there along with a few other species and even if i was diving in the giant ocean tank which had foot thick walls of cement uh, and foot thick glass, mm-hmm. I could hear them when I was diving underwater. If they were, yeah, I mean, oh, they were wow. really loud. <laughs> yeah, that's that's substantially loud, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, what's what's the biggest? Is would that be the emperor? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. How tall are they? How tall are they? They yeah. stand about three and a half to four feet tall, and the females. There's a little bit of sexual dimorphism, so the females are a little bit smaller than the males, and they weigh around sixty-five to seventy-five pounds, and the males can weigh eighty-five to ninety-five pounds. So they're yeah. a big bird. Okay. Okay. So that's about maybe about the height, if not a bit taller than my toddler, but about twice, <laughs> <laughs> about twice the weight. So that's that's okay. <laughs> Is there uh, uh, an evolutionary purpose to the black and white? There is, yeah. So there are a couple. The primary one is it's a form of camouflage called countershading. Um, and so it helps to hide them from their predators and, and also from their prey. Um, so that dark back helps to, them to blend in with the dark ocean floor below if that predator is above them looking down. Uh. <clears throat> And if it's uh, predators below looking up, that white belly is going to blend in with, if it's an Antarctic species, perhaps the the ice above or the sunlight coming through the surface of the ocean above. So it helps them to blend into the surroundings. And um, and when you think about it, actually, most aquatic animals have countershading, right? Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So think about, you know, seals and sharks and fish and sea turtles and, you know, just about any of them that you can think about. They actually all have that type of a a camouflage. Um, That's never occurred to me before. I would have never uh, realized that was a form of camouflage. Yeah. And and so it's not, you know, it helps prey and predator to kind of hide from each other. It works for both of them. Another really cool example of this, just one of my favorite examples, is lanternfish. Um, Lanternfish have bioluminescent 
spots on their belly. And they do daily and nightly migrations to follow their food source. So at night, they move closer to the surface of the water. And in the daytime, they can move farther down. And part of that has to do with the amount of light penetration in the water. During the day, light travels farther down in the water, so, so can they. Those lights help to make it look like it's the sunlight that's piercing through. And at nighttime, they can move farther to the surface to follow their food. It's super, super cool. I think we actually talked about it in a previous episode. That's right. It was the one called Scattered. Yeah, I remember now. Yeah, we've talked about lanternfish a, a few times. Um, and the other thing they can do is use it for a sort of thermal radiation. So when they're on land, um, if they, you'll sometimes see photos of these penguins and they're all standing facing the same direction. And that could be because of wind, but it also could be if, you know, they're trying to soak up some sun, they can, they can put that dark back right towards the sun to heat up. And if they want to cool off, put the white belly to reflect the, the sunlight. Get ready for a bit of an uncomfortable sandwich of sorts. Like uh, like taking one piece of pumpernickel bread and then a piece of white wonder bread and then spreading banana, sour cream and onion chips, peanut butter, buffalo sauce, and Hershey's chocolate okay, syrup along with cherry candies. That's an uncomfortable sandwich. Uh, we mentioned you know, pop culture. And uh, one of the most famous depictions of penguins in pop culture is March of the Penguins, which I just learned, um, funny enough, is the, the second most popular documentary. I don't know if this is around the world or just in America. I'm assuming just America. Uh, the second most popular documentary right behind Fahrenheit 9-11 and just before Never Say Never, which wow. is like Justin Bieber one, <laughs> which is just kind of a humorous like sandwich of you know, Fahrenheit 9-11, penguins, and Justin Bieber. Like, okay. <laughs> Penguins um, popular than Justin. Yeah, there's hope. Okay, <laughs> there, there is hope for the world. Um, but I, I feel like I feel like because of that, we have to at least mention it. Um, mm -hmm. My understanding is that they they do take a lot of creative freedom and in, in the detailing of the love life of Emperor Penguins. Um, is that accurate? Uh, you know, it's interesting. I, yes, I I would say aside from that, they really got everything else right. Sure. And I was so happy when I was at that movie because <laughs> so often, you know, they just get so many things wrong. And, yeah. and they really did a fantastic job with that documentary. But they did sort of anthropomorphize the relationship aspect a bit sure. much. Yeah. So, and the one big, I think, misconception that people walked away with from that movie was that, you know, this grand love story between the pair and that, you know, they mate for life and blah, blah, blah. And, and really they are the least monogamous of all the penguin species. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And the reason being, you know, I, the way I was describing the environment while they're, you know, during their nesting season, it's so harsh. They they have to really hurry up and get through the breeding season. Um, and so they don't have the luxury of necessarily waiting around until last year's mate shows up. So they typically only mate for a season and then the next season they might find a new mate. So they are monogamous for the season. Um, sure. But outside of that, you know, they're not so monogamous. They're really the least monogamous. Sure. Of all I, mean, 
I suppose it makes sense. I mean, it's cold. You're in a hurry. Yeah. There's a lot of you. You kind of all look the same. <laughs> um, so, I mean, is uh, were you who? Uh, I don't know. Let's just, okay, let's just get this over. Like, You'll do. you look good. Yeah. That, that, that sort of makes sense. So. <laughs> also, for your information, not all penguins are heterosexual, by the way. In fact, two of my absolute favorite penguin couples of all time are homosexual. Roy and Silo, born in 1987, those were two chinstrap penguins in New York City's Central Park Zoo. They uh, started doing mating rituals in, in 1998, and in 1999, they actually attempted to hatch a rock as if it was an egg, which is just incredibly cute. They ended up raising an actual chick named Tango. It's incredibly adorable. Fun fact, she actually ended up becoming... Um, as she grew up, she found herself in a similar situation with another female penguin. So, uh, so there you go. Also in 2019, a gay couple penguin at the Berlin zoo adopted an egg and it was incredibly adorable. And you can just watch videos of them trying to, uh, take care of the egg and, and that whole thing. It's, it's super cute. With emperor penguins, I, and I'm trying to remember the details of, of their, their kind of their whole reproductive cycle. Um, don't the don't the the females they kind of head off for i mean how long is it a couple of months for 65 days wow okay oh my gosh so the um yeah so they have a pretty extraordinary breeding cycle it's very very unique even in the penguin world um and so the the females uh the the females will lay their egg and transfer it immediately onto, well, actually before that, you know, they come to the, the breeding ground, which is a hundred miles inland. So they're breeding on these ice shelves that only form during the Antarctic winter. Sure. So, so they walk inland about a hundred miles. Um, they mate, the female uh, gestates that egg for about a month or so. And then she lays the egg, immediately rolls it onto the feet of the male and then they take off. All the females head off to sea. And they're gone for 65 days. And so then they march back to the breeding ground and find their mate, transfer that egg. And the chick has just hatched. They often are hatching just before the females return. And the males have, it's called a penguin milk, but it's not truly a milk. It's just this esophageal excretion that they can regurgitate for that chick for about a day or two. Um, and then the female returns with this belly full of, of fish and squid and krill, et cetera. Males yeah. go off and then they finally can eat. So the males, though, have been literally not eating anything for up to four months. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So they That's... have to, yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. So they have to fatten up before the breeding season. And making um, it that long and that cold, too. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So you're trying to, yeah, because you're burning a lot of calories just trying to stay warm, right? Uh -huh. um, burning through a lot of that stored fat. So they really have to be hardy and fit and nice and plump, you know, before the breeding season even starts. Hey, 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 Richard. Yes. Get ready for some incredibly unnecessary personification. Okay. Now, imagine if humans were like this, where when a woman gave birth, she just kind of slid the baby onto your feet and you had to walk around with, with a baby on your feet for like, well, okay. The baby hasn't hatched yet. She drops her womb. The, just a slimy, you know, it's all just sitting on your feet. feet. Yeah. Like a whole slimy thing on your feet and you've got to keep it warm, 
keep it all good. And she just disappears. She's just like, bye, I'm out. And then disappears for like six months and just binges on like food, Twinkies, all kinds of stuff. And you're just like walking through the cold with this gelatinous sack on your feet. And then eventually she comes back and, and, and like three days before she gets back, the baby actually came out of the womb and you don't have milk. You just have these like little throaty excretions that you can be like, and just spit into the baby's mouth until she gets back. And then she shows up and is like, Oh, thanks. I, I got it from here. And then you can leave. Then you can go eat. You haven't had any food for six months. How crazy would that be? That's, just, that's crazy that they can survive that. Not only not eating know, that right? long, but on top of those extreme temperatures and not eating. Yeah. And yeah. one of the things that they have discovered is that um, when the, the mate selection is going on, it's really the females that choose. And they're listening for the deeper voiced males because that is an indication of body condition and how big they are. Oh. Ah, right? Huh. On, a, on a less romantic note, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, there is, uh, I, I read something recently that I thought was pretty interesting in that there were um, basically claims and observations of penguin prostitution, and particularly with the Adelaide penguin, mm. uh, where females are basically e- exchanging um, reproduction with with you know lesser males or the males that didn't really get to uh, uh, breed for the year right. in, in exchange for rocks. Is that <laughs> is that accurate? It's, <laughs> I, it's I thought sort that was of one of those you know, sort of maybe things, um, you know, to call it, and I know I've seen these articles to call it penguin prostitution is a bit of a stretch. Um, you know, they, they I think it's the alliteration. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I think that's why exactly. Um, you know, they have just, they're, they're discovering that, this goes on a lot more than anybody ever thought, not just with Adeli penguins, but you know, when they actually do DNA testing on some of these chicks, the, the, who they thought was the father oftentimes is not. And so they're discovering there's a lot of, you know, stuff going on on the side in these colonies that (laughs) maybe we're not observing because, you know, we're not there all the time watching what's happening. So, um, they're, 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 they, seem to sometimes play around a bit, but are pretty faithful to their nest and their mate for the season in terms of, you know, once they have that pair bond, they usually keep that bond, but they still might, you know, go off on the side a little bit here and there. So now um, I'm not going to get into the details of this, this, uh, this part in particular. Um, But I mean, so yes, this is, so this story, the story uh, about, Adelie penguin prostitution. Yes, it's it's a whole thing that's been documented, and it turns out it's actually part of a 100-year cover-up. Something that was detailed in a uh, in a book called A Polar Affair. Kind of kind of love the the name of that book. It turns out that scientists actually made that discovery along with some other um, <clears throat> depravities. This is a direct quote from one of the original researchers, along with infidelity, promiscuity. I'm just imagining like a uh, you know, like a early 1900s, like Protestant researcher who's just like, oh, the ankles of the penguin, you know, but, but, but I, I will be honest, discovered some fairly, um, 
disturbing things about the um, <clears throat> exploits <clears throat> of some penguins that, again, I'm not going to detail. I, I can leave a link in the episode notes for um, people who are curious and who want to want to learn more about it. Also, it's something that was detailed in this month's book club book, The Truth About Animals by Lucy Cook. So you could read more about that there. You have time, considering we're all in quarantine. So, you know, you can do it. So um, you you may be you know wondering okay uh, so what's up with like the penguin prostitution like okay so is it real is it not what's up with that the real question should be what's up with rocks I mean I really like rocks different penguin species uh, <laughs> breed build different types of nests so the largest two the emperor and the king don't build a nest at all they incubate a single egg on their feet. Um, and then every other penguin species lays two eggs and they actually build some sort of a nest. Now, for some penguins that live in warmer climates, it's sometimes just a scraped, you know, nest dug out of the ground. Mm -hmm. um, some use grasses or sticks or twigs or bones, and then some use rocks. And so what you see a lot actually in, in Antarctica on the peninsula, because the other species, the Gentoo, the Chinstrap and the Daly, they're breeding during the Antarctic summer. And so if you've ever been there during the Antarctic summer, there's actually a lot of bare ground and there's a lot of rocks, you know, on the beaches of these islands. And so they're actually building a nest out of rocks. And the purpose of that, though, to have these kind of high nests that they build out of rocks is so that there's drainage. So, you know, uh, for the snow when it melts, things like that, if it rains so that the the water drains out of the nest and the eggs or the chicks don't get too wet or drown. Um, and so that's what the whole rock thing is. They're, they're building a little scoop, you know, out of out of rocks, a little nest, essentially. Okay. What, as far as the the uh, the species in the warmer climates and closer to the equator, I mean, what what are they doing with the nest? So now that's an interesting thing. The so say the African penguin, for example, that's a penguin that nests where it's very hot, and historically they nested in um, guano, seabird guano, which was you know penguins as well as other birds, seabirds. Your house looks like crap. Thanks. And that guano had built up on the islands around South Africa, where these birds, where the penguins are, in some places it was 60, 70 feet deep. Because it had been building up for centuries. And yeah, yeah, that's a lot of food. <laughs> and and in South America as well. And you still have um, this guano harvest going on there. But uh, and so the guano actually though provided a really perfect substrate for them to nest in because they could dig it out and and the cave would sort of hold its shape. And because it's still porous, when it would rain it would just, you know, soak into the ground. It wouldn't, it wouldn't puddle up in the nest. But then what happened was in the mid 1800s, um, you know, Europeans came along and said, hey, this makes, we're going to scrape all the guano off the island and collect it to make fertilizer and gunpowder. And when well, they did that, they removed the nesting habitat of, of, you know, millions of penguins. And so this was one of the uh, initial reasons for a huge decline in in some penguin populations because that guano is, and even to this day, as I was saying in Peru, um, uh, there's still a guano harvest, which is impacting the Humboldt penguins there. 
Good old European colonialist mindset, right? Wow, look at all these amazing creatures. Millions of birds for miles on the shore. Look at them in their natural habitat. I bet that they have some kind of importance to the people who live here. Let's let's kill them. Let's take their eggs and, and like let's use their poop for gunpowder and to fertilize bland food that we're going to have to go colonize another country for just so we can flavor it. The historical importance of spices is hilarious to me. <laughs> Man, this tastes like garbage. It could really use some paprika. Let's go invade another country. <laughs> it's kind of ridiculous. You put a tax on my leaf water. <laughs> you put a tax hey, on my bloke. leaf water. How dare you. You know what? Just to stick it to you, I'm going to start drinking hot bean water every day instead. And to, get, and to do it, I'm going to have to invade some other places around the world. Mmm, I love me some hot bean water. Gives me more energy than the dirty tea water. Bean water anyway. will always be superior to leaf water. Well, yeah. Unless it's Earl Grey. Earl Grey is pretty good. Wow, so it's like a a, a white gold rush. Yeah. Is, is it white? I don't know. They, well, well, yeah, they do. They sell the white gold. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Mm-hmm. Gosh, yeah. And you said, so gunpowder... Gunpowder. Yeah, I would love this gunpowder. And gunpowder and fertilizer. I think the nitrate, the nitrate oh, in it. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Wow. That's that's crazy. Right, what what else? So, kind of on that same note, um, you know, as I've said probably seventeen times at this point, people people love penguins. <laughs> uh, I don't think that's a debate for anybody. Right. They, I, I don't know anyone out there who's like. Oh no! I just really hate those things. Um, <laughs> and if they do, then they can come find me, and we'll we'll talk. But right. uh, I, 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 yeah, I just don't think they exist. Um, who knows? But I, I, so I think there's there's this love and there's this romanticism of penguins, and uh, you know the plushiness of them and using them as logos for things. And yeah, and I that. did look up the little blue penguin because uh, I just I just I had to know and oh my gosh it is very very cute it is, right? it is really cute I had to look too yeah um, very cute I, I feel like there's a disconnect between uh the love of you know the cuddly plush I can have as a stuffed animal can I have it as a pet kind of penguin which coincidentally was one of the questions that that the person I mentioned earlier at the top uh, of the uh -huh. said, how could I own one I was like, that's <laughs> probably not something that we want to explore right um, yeah, you can't it's a lot right please don't please don't do that uh yeah uh there's a disconnect between you know the the love and the the, the cutesiness and the reality and the struggle mm -hmm. and so that that right there the the talk of you know feces harvest and that causing decline because of removing nests like i think that would be a shock for most people mm -hmm. to hear um what what are their populations looking like right now, and, and what is contributing to uh, declines in their populations around the globe? Right. Yeah, I'm glad you asked this because this is sort of why I do what I do yeah. is to raise awareness and funding to protect them. Because of those 19 penguin species I mentioned earlier, 14 of them are classified as vulnerable, near threatened, or endangered. Wow. Yeah. And their populations are crashing precipitously at a at a very rapid rate. 
So over the last 50 to 100 years, we've lost um, most of these populations have crashed quite dramatically. So, for example, the Galapagos penguin, there's only about 12 to 1500 left in the wild. And they're only wild. They're not in zoos or aquariums. Um, the yellow-eyed, there's only about 2,500 to 3,500 left in New Zealand. So, you know, we're looking at some really small populations now that that's, really that's could like go the, extinct in our lifetimes. That's like the size of uh, my my high school in Houston. Oh. Uh, wow. that's, I mean, that's not a lot. I mean, that's a lot of students in a school. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's not. But that's it. You could, yeah, the a lot. population. I mean, yeah, you could put the world population in that building, right? Of penguins. Yeah. Probably in one room. And as you guessed, one species connects them all. Us. Shouldn't say that so proudly, though. Yeah, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, so, you know, and man is the culprit. So, historically... The, the guano collection that I mentioned and also the harvesting of their eggs for food was, was a huge decimation of, of some penguin populations as well. And then, you know, today we have issues. The number one threat to penguins today is climate change. It's global warming. And, and primarily what that's doing, it, it has a lot of different impacts on different species depending where they are. But the, the, the main issue is starvation because it's, um, impacting their ability to get enough food. So either by, um, you know, changing the cold water currents and the location of them so that they're further away from the penguins breeding and foraging grounds so that they have to swim three days instead of one day to get food. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's adding a lot. I mean, but yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in Antarctica, it's having a lot of impacts. I mean, the, the poles are the fastest warming places on the planet. And so uh, we're seeing changes in Antarctica that in very real time, we're seeing changes in penguin populations and in the movement of where they're deciding to breed and, and hang out. You know, they're changing their, their colonies. Uh, and we're seeing rain on the peninsula. So when it rains, those chicks with their downy feathers, yeah. they can't, they're not waterproof yet. And so they're very impacted. So there's a lot of different things that are happening with climate change. Overfishing is an issue, pollution, plastics and, and chemicals and oil spills and habitat encroachment and introduced predators and entrapment in fishing nets. You know, there's a number of reasons um, that penguins are, are struggling. Um, and, you know, it's because of us. And so we also, though, have the power to change that and to, to, to reverse that and hopefully, you know, solve some of those problems because penguins really are an indicator species and they're alerting us to the state of their environment. And it's not just them, you know, when we see their populations decreasing, it's an indication to us that other animals are also struggling. You know, it's yeah. not just them, but they're more visible. So we're able to see it, you know, more easily in the penguin than maybe some other species in the ocean. Right, right. You know, I, and I feel like, I feel like this is a consistent theme that's popping up with a lot of the things that we've looked into and just Sadly, yes. the conversations that we've had across the board and what what always seems to stick out to me is uh, it's not any one thing it's mm -hmm. an abundance of things they're mm -hmm. all related to us uh, mm -hmm. 
but it's an abundance of things. And it, it strikes me that, you know, in a lot of these cases, it's probably people in certain industries or in certain whatever. And, and they think, oh, well, I'm only, you know, we're, we're participating in just this one thing. This one thing isn't going to have a substantial impact, but if mm-hmm. you take into account all of the other things and everyone's saying the same thing, it's going to add up and it's going mm-hmm. to be a substantial impact. And you, you have to acknowledge that your actions don't exist in isolation. Yep. Uh, yep. Everything is connected. I, yep. <laughs> yeah. I agree wholeheartedly. Yeah. So yeah. what, what yeah. can people do? I mean, I, in, in general, I suppose what, what are people doing? What can people do? But also I, one thing I always am curious about is, you know, for, for Rebecca in Kansas city, who is mm-hmm. far away from any penguin and is mm-hmm. wanting to help, you know, what, right. what people do? Well, so there, there are a number of things people can do. So Rebecca in Kansas, did you say Kansas? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, something that people could do that maybe they'll never see a penguin in the wild, but they want to do something is to, and it's, it's going to help more than just the penguins, but is to be aware of your own consumption and your own carbon footprint. So I always, you know, because climate change really is sort of the big issue of our time and it's going to impact more than just the penguins in the ocean. It's going to impact us in so many different ways. And so if we can each, you know, take responsibility for um, our, our consumption habits, I always try and shop locally, you know, instead of like, even if I'm buying something online and there's a choice to purchase it from a vendor in New York, or I can get it cheaper from a vendor from California and I'm in Boston, I'll pay more to get it from a vendor that's closer. So there's less of a carbon footprint. Um, so, and so to, uh, there's a, Global, there's footprint calculators online that you can do, go to to figure out, okay, how, what is my carbon footprint? And usually most of those calculators will also uh, have resources there that will help you understand, okay, that's my footprint and here are the steps I can take to reduce it. Um, you know, public, take public transportation, drive a hybrid. I, I, on my second Prius now, um, eat only sustainable seafood. Um, and if you want to do something very, very specifically to help penguins, mm-hmm. uh, I revamped my website a year ago and I now have a, a completely thorough list up there, um, of all the different penguin rescue research and conservation groups throughout the Southern hemisphere. And so there's the links to the donation pages for all of those places. So say, you know, you are in love with King penguins or you love little blue penguins and you really want to do something to help them there's a link to all those different species and all the different locations in the world. So you can make a direct donation. And that's, you know, what I I donate 20% of the proceeds from my book, the great penguin rescue and from every appearance that I make to these groups. So it's sort of a a way to continue to give back. Yeah. Uh, uh, Something that a lot of people ask and you're a teacher. So I would imagine you might have students that ask this question and, and especially, you know, if I am talking with, with younger people, uh, a very common question is how would I get involved in this field? You know, if I yes. want to work in a zoo or an aquarium or become a penguin expert or research. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And, that'd, be, that'd be fantastic. Yeah. And so I would, you know, I, I mean, I was a late bloomer. I did not start this career until I was in my mid thirties. Um, and 
And so one of the really important things I learned through this process, I went back to school to become a veterinary nurse. So I have a bachelor's science degree um, in animal science. And so there's a lot of different type of degrees you can get to get involved in this field, but biology, marine biology, zoology, um, you know, uh, animal behavior, um, even linguistics, you know, I mean, there are different things that you might be studying. So there's a lot of different fields that can get you there. But one of the things that I think is critical, especially for if people think they want to work in a zoo or an aquarium, is to volunteer. And, you know, because when people show up and they would apply, because I used to hire the volunteers in the penguin department at the New England yeah. Aquarium. And they're like, well, I don't have any penguin experience. I'm like, well, I wouldn't expect you to, you know. But, <laughs> you know, did you volunteer at your local shelter cleaning out cages? Did you walk dogs? Did you, um, you know, there's a lot of other ways you can get some sort of animal experience. Uh, and then once you are a volunteer or an intern at a facility, I always recommend if you're really serious about this as a career to stick around long after your internship or volunteer commitment is over. Because most people, most of these places hire from within their volunteer pool and they're going to hire the people who have stuck around and they know are really serious about this and they can see they have a really strong work ethic yeah. and a love for this. Yeah. Um, so that's my number one recommendation for people that, that want to do that sort of route. No, that's, that's, that's great advice. It's similar advice that I've tried to give people in the past because I, gosh, I can't tell you how often there's, Oh, I really want to study this animal. I really want to be involved in this animal. Oh, I don't want to take that internship though. I, I want to find mm -hmm. something you know, like, okay, that's in wildlife in particular. That is just not how it's going to work. <laughs> like you've got to, you've got to put in the grunt work and show that you're committed and that you will, mm -hmm. you're willing to get down and dirty when you need to. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not glamorous. It's, yeah. <laughs> wildlife work is not uh how you know you might expect from watching a documentary on national geographic it's it's not <laughs> mud and poop and bug bites and yep. all kinds of stuff <laughs> yeah oh yeah i mean it's yeah that's one thing i didn't talk about actually that you know you just reminded me of is that penguins have razor sharp beaks they are not all cute and cuddly they can be really ordinary and nasty and when they bite you it hurts like you would not even believe <laughs> you end up I, I have a lot of penguin scars, a lot of penguin scars. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I imagine that you, uh, you wear them proudly. I do. Cool thing to be able to say, how do you get that one? Oh, a penguin. <laughs> right. What? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the topic of, uh, of conservation and how to do it the right way how to do it appropriately, how to do it responsibly. It's something that we're going to explore a lot more into the future. Um, we actually have an episode coming up that's sort of on orangutans, but ends up being on a lot more than than that. Um, and it, so, so we'll be talking about it more then. Um, but that's also the sort of reason that we started the Wildlife Ambassador Program, where if you become a patron, 10% of your monthly contributions go towards helping uh, conservation. That's uh, also why we're picking Diane's book, for for April's book club pick um, because proceeds of that are put directly towards penguin conservation. Um, there are there are little things that we can all do. 
there are some big things that we can do. Um, now, it gets tricky depending on, on where you are socioeconomically. Um, and yes, there are there are pieces that are the responsibilities of governments and corporations um, around the world. It, it does not um, relieve us of our responsibility to each other, to other lives on this planet, and, and to the planet as a whole. Um, we all have a, have a piece at stake, and uh, we, all have a, we all have a role that we can play. And sometimes you just have to figure out what that role is. So again, that's something that we're going to, we're definitely going to be exploring into the future. Now, Chris, um, if you're listening, you better be listening because I'm going to send it to you. And, and if you don't listen, I'm going to smack you upside the head um, because this this episode was for you, dedicated 100% to you. So I hope that we didn't burst your penguin bubble at all by talking about some of the uh, some of the other stuff that might have uh, ruined your picture of them as all fluff and innocence um, because they're not all fluff and innocence. But either way. I really do hope that you thoroughly enjoyed. And now, it is time for Animal Sound of the Week. Now, it's time for Animal Sound of the Week. Just like that really loud announcement from Richard just said. Now, we really didn't have one last week. You know, if you've been listening, you know what's what's up and why we didn't exactly have one last week and everything. So it's kind of fresh start, fresh start, new sound right now. Okay. Okay. Okay, I think that was pretty good, pretty solid. We should start a playlist of only the sounds that we have made so that researchers can use them to uh, lure in the real deal because that's just how good we are also right? make for a great track for a road trip yeah I, I agree or just you know your pandemic playlist you know penguin pandemic playlist is uh, for this episode and then and then maybe we can get a you know like a Ted Ed video Diane's Ted Ed video and maybe some other penguin videos we can make a penguin pandemic playlist for people to enjoy that'd be great thanks again to the people who make this show possible our patrons who support us through patreon.com slash the wildlife again if you would like to become a patron yourself for as little as a dollar even 25 cents a month you can do it at that link that i that i literally just said patreon.com slash the wildlife if you want to submit your guests for the Animal Sound of the Week, you can do that on social media where we will be posting it. Uh, you can also email us at hey.thewildlife at gmail.com. If you'd like to join the book club or purchase Diane's book, check the episode notes for links to do so. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy. 